Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. But joining me right now to talk about what's going on right now, Broken Doors is the six-part investigative podcast by investigative reporter for the Washington Post. Let me welcome to the show, Jen Abelson. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming in. You were not probably alive when Eleanor Bumpers was killed in New York in the Bronx. I was alive, but uh, <laughs> I was a bit younger than I am now. <laughs> okay, a lot. Uh, Nineteen eighty-four. Um, talk to me about Brianna Taylor. Hit a lot of us because she happened after uh, the case of Bolton John. So it's like, what is happening here? And since Brianna Taylor, we've had another one. You know, so what is happening here? And what did you find in your report? Brianna Taylor was the launching point for us to, to dig into this issue. I think a lot of people had not really heard the term no-knock warrant before her death. And as you mentioned, she was a young Black woman who was killed in her own apartment after police opened fire. They forced their way into her apartment. Um, she was the target of a drug investigation, which is what we've seen in so many of these no-knock warrants that have gone awry. Our police are targeting drug offenders. They're seeking to break down the doors and um, end up in these very violent confrontations. And so we looked at Brianna's death and wanted to understand how often does this happen? What are the actual consequences of such an aggressive and intrusive form of policing? And so my uh, reporting partner, Nicole Dunka and I sort of set off on this year long journey to understand what no-knock warrants are, how they're used and what it looks like when we consider policing in America. And so we identified at least 22 people who've been killed in no knock, deadly no knock warrant raids uh, since 2015. Most of these were involved in um, drug investigations. As I mentioned, not Amir Locke, who was um, the most recent one that we've heard a lot about. Uh, but they, we found that these officers were able to get no knocks with a very low bar. They, they often sometimes had very little information. They were able to force their way into people's homes, which I think a lot of people wonder how it conflicts with your Fourth Amendment rights to feel protected and safe in your own home. And we learned a lot about, um, I think, a policing tactic that some of us have probably seen on, on shows like Cops and other things, but don't really understand what it means in our own lives and our communities. Uh, Jen, what does what is like the justification on a public policy level for the no-knock warrant? Why do we even have it? Why does it even exist? It's existed for decades and it was used and adopted more widely in the 70s as Nixon launched his war on drugs. And the idea was that there had to be specific circumstances. There were concerns potentially about officer safety as well as the destruction of evidence. And largely what we talked to some of the people who were some of the chief policy people influencing Nixon to um, put support behind no-knock warrants. And they were saying this is a very, this is a very easy issue at the time to get behind. It seemed that it was, you know, people were flushing drugs down the toilet, so it made drug crimes um, harder to prosecute. And a lot of people were blaming the rise in crime on drug use um, from the 60s and 70s. And so the idea was that this would keep officers safer and that this would prevent the destruction of drug evidence and make these crimes easier to prosecute. But I think what we've seen is that we have gone, you know, pretty far off from where, where people started thinking about this. And this was largely pushed by politicians. This was not something that like you were hearing police all over the country demanding mm. for at the time. And I think that the, we talked to Don Santarelli who was a policy, criminal policy advisor for Nixon. And he talks about it with regret about this whole policy that he helped push and he was an advocate for. Uh, well, 
As you're talking, um, we've been on these airwaves uh, talking about Ehrlichman, who was a, a Nixon domestic advisor, right? Who's, I mean, there, there are wide publications that have reported him saying we're going to flood black communities with heroin. We're going to label and flood, you know, these hippies with the marijuana. We're going to criminalize. And this was a domestic policy to criminalize drugs and push drugs into black neighborhoods and then come with the policies. There's something really nefarious about flooding a neighborhood and a community because black people didn't have the, the planes or any means to bring the drugs in to flood. You know, I'm watching Snowfall, too. So there's like the, the Reagan administration doubled down on it with the Contra funding. You're flooding neighborhoods with drugs and then you're criminalizing the people who then are selling the drugs that you flood the neighborhoods with. And now you're putting policies in place that cost people their lives. How does that work? And then on top of that, you have, like you were talking about with Reagan, they, they were so much money poured into um, launching these SWAT teams and, and militarizing the police in such a way that they were, you know, they're, they're SWAT teams. They have incredible, um, you know, revenue for, for these seizures, for these efforts to get their ballistic plate carriers and to have all the gear that they need to carry out these raids and in ways that they've been trained by the military to do so in some cases. Uh, and so it just created this real convergence of a lot of a lot of the problems that created very violent confrontations. So, so what, I, what I'm saying, and I know Cena, you want to jump in is they created the system. How are they then at the same time? I can't believe this is the outcome when you actually, this was the blueprint. We pushed um, Don when we talked to him to, to sort of be specific on the regrets and he really wasn't willing to dive into it. It's just talking about generally regrets. But he also, you know, he said that he doesn't think we'll ever be able to walk back no-knock warrants from policing in America, that he thinks that they, the sort of the genie is out of the bottle, that you're not going to be able to um, fix the problems of a violent society and very violent policing. There's guns so many places where they weren't, you know, decades ago. Um, but I think it's been really hard to wrap our heads around, you know, how how this tactic became so widespread in America and became so commonplace that, you know, they were the go-to. That's where we explored some communities where no-knock warrants were the rule rather than the exception. And it sort of really upended lives. I, have one more. I just want to give the quote uh, from John Ehrlichman, who told a journalist in 1994, Dan Baum, he said, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jen. Oh, you're going to go ahead, Jen. You're going to respond. I was just going to say, I mean, I do think at the time there was a lot of pushback from the black community and other people who were saying that these were that these were clearly policing tactics that were meant to target them, that were meant to undermine their, you know, their their worlds, their lives. Um, and we see that today when we looked at the fatalities of the people who were killed in no knock warrants of the 22 people, at least 13 were black or Hispanic. And so as we've seen throughout this war on drugs, it's disproportionately targeted um, black and Hispanic communities and people, poor people. And, um, and we haven't um, been able to make real headway on that. You mentioned earlier that these officers were able to get 
no-knock warrants far too easily. Can you kind of distinguish the threshold, the evidentiary threshold of a no-knock warrant versus one where you do have to knock? Sure. The default is is as a regular search warrant where you're supposed to um, knock and announce yourselves and give people a chance to come to the door. And in a no-knock warrant, um, you're just, I mean, you're supposed to be able to provide specifics of that case. It's, you know, there were cases that came before the Supreme Court where there were communities in Wisconsin that where they, any felony drug investigation, they decided to try to break down someone's door. And the, the mm. Supreme Court ruled that that is not acceptable, that you have to provide specific reasons why you're justifying this use of force. So it has to be officer safety. You're supposed to be, you know, saying that you did this, this, you know, suspected drug dealer has a gun. Or you're supposed to give reasons around, you know, the destruction of evidence, concerns around that they could be flushing, that they, it, it's, a, it's a pretty low bar. I was going to well, say, these are so broad. Oh, my God. And so, right. So it's really broad. And so there is, a, you know, it's very, very easy for police to exploit these, um, the vagueness that's, that exists there. And so what you have is not only do you have police that have, like, pretty wide latitude and in situations in which they can ask for them. We also found as part of our reporting that judges routinely do not push back. They do not question the claims of officers. Like, do you really need this no-knock warrant in this situation? They don't ask questions. Are children living there? Are elderly people living there? Um, you know, are disabled people living there? And so you end up with these situations where sometimes we found they didn't even know the name of the person's home that they were raiding. Um, sometimes they had the wrong addresses. And we've seen that around the not only in deadly raids, but you see where officers are breaking down doors and, and realizing, whoops, we're at the wrong home. And so um, it, yeah. it's, it was remarkable to us that such an aggressive form of policing is so easy to obtain. That's funny. You got, my next question was going to be on judicial discretion. And did you ever find opportunities where, you know, from the federal level or at the state level, new rules and procedures could be given uh, to the judiciary to kind of... And, instruct them to ask certain sets of questions. This happens all the time, right? So why, why has that never happened? There's, been, there's just been a lot of discretion for judges to sort of make up their own minds on how to, how to approach these. There haven't been any national, there's no national training, there's no real guidelines. And you've seen in places like South Carolina where one of their chief um, judicial officials uh, stopped allowing magistrates who are kind of lower level um, judicial administrators. They don't necessarily have the same training as a judge. They haven't been to law school and they oh. often are tasked with signing off on no-knock warrants. And so he, he banned them, put a moratorium on allowing these magistrates to sign off on no-knock warrants because he found that they didn't understand the ramifications of what they were signing off on. And that's not unique to South Carolina. We found cases mm -hmm. Mississippi, where justice court judges who are not required to have law degrees are in charge of signing off on these warrants. And in one particular county that I explored and reported deeply in Monroe County, Mississippi, the judge had like a week or two of training before he took on his position was sort of, they, they explained probable cause, he continued to have training throughout, but like he was put in the position of making these critical decisions. And when we talked to him after a deadly raid, and, you know, he, he still felt strongly. And a lot of these judges and a lot of law enforcement officers we talked to, even after being involved in these, you know, really risky and dangerous situations, still believe that these should exist. Um, and so you do see communities that are reconsidering them. I talked with some folks from the American Judges Association who said that there are conversations that are happening about whether or not judges should be restricting when they should limit signing off on them or banning them entirely, but they're still in the early discussion stages. Well, South Carolina, Mississippi, uh, they both celebrate uh, Confederate Memorial Day. 
I, I do think there is a connection and I do think that they, because who is disproportionately, and let's just talk who's disproportionately impacted by these no knock warrants. Let's just say that, by the way, we're with Jen Abelson. Uh, she is of course, an investigative reporter for the Washington post, the host of the broken doors, six part investigative podcast on this no knock warrant phenomenon. And you can follow her at Jen J E N N two N's Abelson, A B E L S O N disproportionately of the 22 killings since 2015 what would have what were the race of those 22 people 13 were black or hispanic um, uh, okay and the other eight were white yes okay um and and of those though we did find that in, nine in the white... wait my math is bad nine okay nine. the other nine yeah. go ahead so 13, yeah 13 of the 22 were black or hispanic and we found that these often even when they are happening in white communities that they're uh, often in poor communities. And so we saw that in Mississippi with Ricky Keaton, who lived in a trailer um, and deputies, when they came and they shot up his trailer and killed him, they ended up seizing all of his property. And that's the other thing that's connected that we don't often talk about with no-knock warrants is the ways in which some police departments have used these search warrants and used these drug raids as a way to sort of easily seize lots of property, cash, vehicles from people all in the name of this war on drugs a trailer you can surround and it's not even connected to the, you can't flush anything out of a trailer. These it's unreal. Yeah. But Cena, if you, if you, if you have not been forced to turn on your humanity yeah, and you've been, no, you know, sure. deputized to take, to take life. I, I feel like there's almost like this, this rite of passage to take a life, you know, with some of these folk who I think join the police force because they get this military training, because they get to, yeah. with impunity, do whatever they want as long as they have a badge. And so what what is the solution, Jen? Is there is is there going to be, you know, we, we now, a lot of states are reconsidering the role of police, but now it's turned into a state's rights thing, which we're seeing even with abortion and other issues. The states are now, so if you're in Mississippi or South Carolina, you're going to have a different experience than if you're in, you know, New Jersey or Connecticut. What, what is the, the solution here? It's, it's, as you mentioned, it's really varies across this, across the country. We have seen efforts to restrict them in a number of communities at the state level, as well as um, on cities, like including Breonna Taylor's hometown in Louisville. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice put restrictions on when their agents are able to carry out no-knock warrants, but very few have banned them entirely. There is new, you know, the the effort to restrict no-knocks at the national level was in, included in the George Floyd Justice America uh, Justice Act, and that never got out of the never got out of the Senate. It died. And we're seeing there's new legislation being introduced. Um, I think the Muir Lock Law was recently introduced uh, in the House. But I think it's really hard. And, you know, at the same time, we're seeing surges in crime across America. And so all of the a lot of the discussion around um, police and budgets and reconsidering their role in America that were taking place in 2020, we've seen such a change, I think, in the last couple of years. I will say that, you know, one of the things that's been interesting in looking at the places that have imposed restrictions is it's not entirely leaning one political direction or another, because there's a strong view of, um, you know, there are people who truly believe in their Second Amendment and gun rights, and people have the right to defend their homes. And so this really clashes with their beliefs, these no-knock warrants that people can, you know, police can barge into their homes. We saw so many of these fatal no-knocks and other people being injured in Texas in particular. And so 
I, I do think that there has been movement in places where you might not think about it. And, um, but I, I don't know if we'll ever really see change across the country. Uh, we've seen in Wisconsin has gone in the other direction. They introduced a bill earlier this year to ban any restrictions on no-knock warrants. They didn't want police to have any kind of restrictions um, in carrying out these kinds of raids. Oh. Whew, 866-801-8255. Uh, as I mentioned before you came on, Jen, uh, we had a caller who was involved in the uh, police officer, he says, uh, during the Eleanor Bumpers uh, shooting in New York in 1984. Let's welcome him in, on Gary in New York. Thanks for holding. Yes, how are you doing? Good. How's it? How's everything? Awesome. Yes. Hello? Yes. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, I was uh, I was there. Um, let me get the um, story straight so you can really know what happened. Uh, Ms. Bumpers was, was being evicted mm-hmm. from her home, right? right? So me and another officer, we went. She was living in Sedwick Houses in the Bronx. <clears throat> right. So um, we went there, and uh, the daughter answered the phone and answered the door, I mean, and um you know, I said, what's the power? My mother, she's in the back. She's just so upset. You know, she's getting ready to get evicted. And she was in the back, you know, she was waving a knife. And she was just, you know, she was distraught. Right. So I was trying to talk to her. Right. You know, I said, look, Miss Bumpers, maybe you can go to the um, management office. Maybe they could find you a place or something just to spend the night. Or, you know, I was just trying to calm her down. I knew she had to get out. Right, but the next thing that happened, ESU came to the apartment. Now ESU is emergency services service unit. They pushed us out the way. They went in with um, the barriers, and the next thing we knew, we heard shots. And I told my partner, I said, "Oh my God, they shot this woman!" And after that, the brass came up and just got us out of there. That's what happened. That one and of the officers, day, uh, his name was Stephen Sullivan. He was the one that was charged well, with second degree manslaughter. He was the one that had this the, which I, the twelve gauge shotgun seems a bit much, uh, you know, for police even in the nineteen eighties when it was wild in New York. Was that the standard uh, weapon? Look, ESU. That's a whole. That's a specialized unit. I just couldn't believe it happened. Specialized I, I really to evict old women. It was just she was big; she couldn't move around. I she just had arthritis. Yeah, I, I mean, said, you, is, you're speaking to something though that I think you know, Jen, and your research because I remember when Amadou Diallo was shot. It was a special unit. We own the night. I think is the way they labeled themselves. Giuliani had this special crimes unit that would come out and uh, I mean to release a clip and then reload and release 30 bullets into one vestibule in the Bronx at the time must be something about the Bronx and gun down an immigrant who had a wallet, not a gun. But even if he had a gun, you would think they would be trained enough. You know, are we, are we revisiting training? Like what, what, (laughs) in addition to all of this and thank you, uh, Gary for calling. Appreciate it your service retraining is it a training issue or is it a humanity issue i i think that we are seeing some some places across the country retraining around 
some of these aggressive policing tactics. In Monroe County, Mississippi, there was a new sheriff that came in in 2020 and he started doing drills with officers to approach no-knock warrants. They didn't ban them entirely, but approach them more methodically to um, slow down the speed at which they enter, to give people more of a chance to understand what's happening. Um, and that's happening in Mississippi and there's no, there was no pressure to, you know, there's no efforts to restrict no knocks. No one is up in arms about what happened necessarily across, you know, in terms of widespread opposition. And so it, I think a lot of this does boil down to leadership within um, communities in Houston after there was a terrible no knock raid in 2019 that killed a couple and injured several officers. And at the time the police chief there put a ban on it. And so that's, I think the leadership positions in some of these um, in some of these departments, whether it's retraining or making policy decisions about whether something like this is a permissible tactic in their departments, um, there there is a lot of leeway and a lot of opportunity there. Mm. Since this is with like the um, executive branch, like the enforcement division, can can like the president or can this the governor of these states make an executive order to ban no knock warrants? Yeah, they, in, in Nevada, the AG had proposed and then the governor signed a bill um, severely restricting the use of no-knock warrants and saying that they can't be used in simple drug possession um, you know, crimes. Uh, they have to be a higher level crime, putting in a lot. And so you can, there are opportunities and we have seen some states doing that. Um, yeah. We need more. We need more. Yeah. Uh, what should, what's the next uh, investigative piece that you're working on, Jen? What else so you tomorrow... Working? Yeah, uh, so we are six, all six of our episodes landed. The last, the final one was on, um, was last week. Tomorrow, I have a written story that is affiliated with the series um, that looks at the experience of Monroe County, where a sheriff there in this rural community waged a war on drugs for many years, where it became the uh, rule rather than the exception, and to understand um, the consequences of what happened under his tenure and the struggles people there still today are, are enduring. Um, so that's that's the next thing up for me, and then um, and then TBD. <laughs> All right. Well, Washington Post is where you can find Jen Abelson. Thank you so much for being here. Jen with two N's, uh, Abelson, A-B-E-L-S-O-N. Follow her on the Twitters. Thanks for being here today. I appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.